It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome back to Signal Boost. I'm Zerlina Maxwell, and I'm joined by one of our favorite all-time Signal Boost guests, uh, Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Hello, how are you doing? I haven't seen you since a few months ago. We, we, we chatted on Signal Boost. How are you, you know, since so many things have changed, I'm sure. Well, you know, listen, all things considered, you know, I think uh, the fact that we're still standing, you know, so, uh, and it's always good to be at a, at, a, at a virtual table with you, but I look forward to when we can be together uh, in studio again. I know, and I feel like, you know, I'm in the back of my mind, I'm like, a DC move might be in the card just because my family lives in Virginia and it might be closer. So it might be a reality sooner than later in the sense that I might be a DC residence part-time. Okay, all right, soon. fingers um, crossed. But that's a fingers crossed, like I'm saying it out loud to sort of put it out there so that I follow through and all the steps that that requires. Well, Zulina, I, want- I, 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 won't, I won't pretend that if you, if you move to the DMV, suddenly we'll be doing a bunch of social things together because I'm, you know, you're busy over there <laughs> informing, educating, stoking the consciousness of the masses and I'm busy legislating, you yes. know, so, <laughs> so that, that doesn't, that doesn't stop, you know, but, right. but maybe we can, you know, partake of some libation at some point. I think that would, that sounds like a really good idea. And I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to that Okay. <laughs> uh, for the event that I do move. So I want to start off actually um, with the state of the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, because I think, you know, I don't remember exactly what month it was in this pandemic the last time we chatted, but a lot has happened just in the last week <laughs> uh, in terms of new guidance and CDC, CDC guidelines, which indicate that we're moving in the right direction. Um, But still, our communities are still suffering so many of the after effects um, of this traumatic year that we've experienced. How is your district doing? Um, And and at this state in the pandemic, I know that some of our communities were hit so hard earlier on. How How is your district doing right now? Well, first, let me just say that the American Rescue Plan under a new administration, I do think was the first relief package to make the sort of bold, robust investment and strides necessary to both get direct relief to workers, to families, um, to our school districts, to get those investments necessary to ensure that our public health response continues to be one that is equitable, that we're guarding against things like vaccine redlining. So there was really game-changing stuff in that, in that American uh, rescue plan. I think um, prior to that, we were really struggling to advance packages that met the scale and scope of the crisis. So we're on our way and I see and feel and hear that in my district. Now my district, the Massachusetts Seventh Congressional District has been the hardest hit in our mass delegation. This is a district that is 53% people of color, 40% foreign born, 30% uh, single parented uh, or or heads of households. Um, And so uh, we're in a three mile radius, life expectancy drops by 30 years. So because of those those comorbidities of structural racism, 
um, we knew anecdotally that our, our district would be hardest hit and that has, that has bore out. But it has been heartening to mm-hmm. hear from my mayors, from my superintendents, from our small business owners mm. who have been able to access the uh, PPP relief or benefit from the restaurant revitalization fund. So I, 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 don't, I, I don't know if I am so bold enough as to say we are rounding the corner, but I do believe we are on our way. Now, when you talk about trauma, you know, uh, you're speaking my language because mm-hmm. that's work I began on the Boston City Council um, that I've continued in Congress, convening the first congressional hearing on childhood trauma, introducing the Strong Support for Children Act bill to specifically address childhood trauma, and lobbying the Biden-Harris administration early on, Zerlina, uh, I wrote them, asking for them to ensure that we have a trauma-informed recovery. And I've asked them to kick that off with a White House summit um, to better understand community-based responses to trauma. So Mm -hmm. even if we are doing the work and again, we still was an eviction tsunami, uh, you know, that's coming and things like that. Still so much work to be done with the public health aspect and to mitigate the financial hardship, but the trauma is real. Mm-hmm. And that is not going to immediately show up or manifest itself. And so those sorts of investments must be a part of our infrastructure as well. And one of the things that uh, you have focused on in particular, and this is why representation is so important. It's not, as Jess says so smartly all the time, it's not you know, about having a picture that's pretty and, and, and diverse. It's about the lived experience and perspectives that are present in the room when the policy is being made, because when you have those perspectives present, your outcomes can be better right. because you have uh, the full scope of experience. Speak to um, the, the issue of policies in the American Rescue Plan and also in the American Families Plan that actually focus on single parent, as you said, households. Because, you know, that's not often something that is singled out uh, in, in policy and in, in legislation. And I, it, it's almost like they were rewriting the narrative of the welfare queen in real time and saying, yeah, that is that was a lie anyway, but also single parents, single mothers, single fathers, they need support. Absolutely, I mean, look, there are many family models. I mean, uh, just last week, I reintroduced a bill to support our grand families, grandparents raising grandchildren, which is also a, a growing family model. And myself and, and Congressman McGovern reintroduced a bill to uh, ensure that our grand families can have access to safe and affordable housing. Um, There are many family models. I grew up in a single parented household. Uh, Katie Porter is a single mom. Um, And so again, that is the power and the impact of representation. It's about how it shows up in our policies. And, you know, having grown up in a single parented household, you know, there is no discount to being a single parent. And that certainly is not true given the exorbitant cost of childcare. Massachusetts is actually uh, ranks the second highest childcare uh, in the country, uh, higher than some uh, tuition costs for uh, state colleges. And then in the district that I represent, the Massachusetts uh, seven, more than half of these households are single parent households. 
And so with millions out of work because of COVID-19, our single parents need all the help that they can get. And the child tax credit that was passed in the American Rescue Plan, which mm -hmm. we're currently, um, you know, Democrats are fighting to make permanent because economists have characterized it as uh, the biggest anti-poverty legislation uh, in, in modern times. It will cut child poverty uh, in half. But the reality is, really, is because of cultural biases of what is family, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that we know that there are uh, racial biases and discriminatory um, patterns written into our tax code, uh, the same is true when it comes to our family models. And so our tax code makes it harder for single parents to get help versus married couples, even mm. though single parents are, um, are bearing more responsibility uh, for their families because they are going at it alone. So we should be making it easier for single parents. And, you know, 81% of single parented households are headed by women and 60% of those households are headed by black women. Mm. And so the bill that Representative uh, Porter and I have introduced is to fix our antiquated tax code to make it easier for single parents to get help from this expanded child tax credit. Right. So we are confronting head on this biased, discriminatory, uh, antiquated tax code. Tax code. It's so it's so interesting when you when you frame it that way because you realize the limitations of having you know the the people in power that we've had for literally some in the Senate have been there for 40 years. Um, so, so you realize, you know, our policies need an update um, because our families, you know, they don't, well, they always were diverse, but we, as you said, needed a more expansive definition of what they are to match our present realities. Um, Absolutely. And so let me just say, so, um, to all the single uh, head parent households out there, just want to make sure people understand that specifically what this bill, uh, what we're trying to do is to, um, you know, end the single parent penalty, right? Mm. And again, ensure that single uh, parent households can benefit from this expanded child tax credit. And so what it does is this bill with Representative Porter is that it would change the income threshold for Americans filing as heads of households. So the status most commonly used by single parents so that it is the same as those who are married and filing jointly. So I want to mm -hmm. make sure people understand the mechanics of it. So it's a racial justice issue. It's an economic justice issue. Yep. It's a gender justice issue when you're we're talking about 80% of single parent households being female headed and 60% being black. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so critically important. Another related issue um, you know, is something that happened this week, which is the Supreme Court decided to take up uh, the, the law out of Mississippi or the case out of Mississippi uh, with their law that basically bans abortions uh, at 15 weeks. And, and you as a longtime advocate for choice, you know what this means. Uh, many advocates um, have sort of been dreading um, this exact moment in time. As we sort of think through the ways in which we're supporting women, women and families in a more expansive way with that potential out there for the Supreme Court to strip away so much progress. I mean, how do you, how do you calibrate sort of where you put your energy in terms of proactive legislation to help women and reactive 
uh, policies or legislation to protect them from, you know, some of the dangerous realities they're going to experience when, you know, states as a result potentially start passing bans? Yeah, I mean, it's both and, right? <laughs> so um, we have to do it all. You know, the assault is real. And, you know, uh, shout out to all those folks that were gaslighting us. Yes. Who continue to, uh, who continually asserted that uh, Kavanaugh saw this as settled law and then being hyperbolic. Um, you know, shout out to all those, those, those folks that, that were gaslighting us. Um, you know, I think in terms of protection, um, the sort of systemic structural change that this moment requires, it's everything from abolishing the filibuster to expanding the courts, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to also legislating uh, to affirm and to codify those rights and also, um, you know, leaning on our state legislatures. So I'm, I'm doing it, I'm exacting every tool available to me. I do this, I do vice chair the uh, task force on abortion rights and access for the pro-choice caucus. Um, when I joined Congress in the 116th, that was the first pro-choice majority Congress. Mm. So now we're in the 117th, and um, this is, you know, still uh, a pro-choice majority Congress, and that has to mean something. Right. So, you know, although the landscape is sobering um, and the work ahead is daunting, we do have to get at it in every way. So our state legislatures. Uh, fight to expand uh, the courts, abolish the filibuster, and then continue to do the work of legislating uh, in the House to um, to affirm uh, the law and uh, to codify uh, an individual's uh, right to choice. And so we we have legislation like the Each Woman Act, which seeks to get at that. You know, I'm we've spoken many times about my advocacy around repealing Hyde. Right. You know, again, while we continue to say we're in the midst of this this reckoning, um, you know, a reckoning is something epic. So we have to, we have to move uh, accordingly mm -hmm. and bold and advance bold progressive policies. Which, by the way, although there were many attempts to marginalize those policies, they are wildly popular. Right, and that and that is true um, for Roe v. Wade as well. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a majority issue, no doubt. Um, one of the things that, you know, the abortion issue brings up a lot is the hypocrisy um, that exists. And I think the pandemic has also brought this out as well. But the hypocrisy of, and I'm not going to call them the pro-life movement, it's anti-choice, um, but the pro-life so-called movement, because they're not for life. Um, and one of the issues that I was reading about even this morning, and I was particularly disturbed because there's not enough chemicals for the lethal injections uh, around the country. And so certain states are discussing whether or not we should use firing squads uh, for, for death penalty cases. And I just, it's 2021, I feel like we, we could have evolved to the point where we can have a real conversation about the abomination that is the death penalty. Uh, and you have been outspoken recently even about the federal death penalty. So speak to just one, the hypocrisy of those who want to limit choice um, in the name of protecting life 
but who support the death penalty um, and the state, you know, uh, le leveling final and, and forever justice that can't be rectified. And we talk about how the system is flawed. So how does yeah. that, how does that work? I think, you know, what it, the point here is that people thought after uh, Donald Trump was no longer in the Oval Office that our work was done, but he and his administration and his Department of Justice um, exacted great harm um, and harm that we are still uh, on the front lines of undoing uh, when it comes to healthcare justice, reproductive justice, immigrants' rights, climate justice, and the death penalty. They resurrected the federal death penalty. And in fact, in Trump's final months in office, mm -hmm. they executed more people in those final days of their administration than had been executed in the last six decades. State-sanctioned murder is not justice. And at least one in 25 are innocent on death row. Mm -hmm. We know our criminal legal system is one that is uh, disproportionately unjust for uh, the poor, uh, for Black Americans and other uh, marginalized groups. And we see that play out uh, with who is on death row. And so I've introduced this bicameral bill with uh, Senator Durbin, who mm -hmm. chairs the Judiciary Committee, to abolish uh, the federal death penalty because we need to make sure that no future president can reinstate this policy because state-sanctioned murder is not justice. Now, the fact that the chair of the Judiciary Community, uh, uh, Committee is co-sponsoring co this legislation with me and is my Senate lead I think bears in our favor. The fact that 70, we have 70 plus uh, new co-sponsors um, across uh, you know, both bodies here, the endorsement of some 250 plus grassroots organizations. So that says to me that there is a culture shift occurring um, and now the, the policy shift must match that, uh, that culture shift. But there is a growing momentum and support uh, for our bill to abolish the federal death penalty. And I might also just add that, you know, again, while we're in the midst of this reckoning, Zerlina, yeah. <laughs> Black people make up less than 13% of the nation's population, but account for more than 42% of those on death row. And again, one in 25 sentenced to death row are innocent. And capital punishment does not deter crime. Right. I, I mean, I remember, you know, when you're back in school and you have to do that uh, debate about the death, usually the death penalty is one of those things you have to write an essay about, like, sure. so for or against, it like teaches you how to make arguments. Right. Um, right. I just remember that exercise. And I just remember being like, well, the, there isn't, the argument pro is bad. It's actually a bad argument. All the, all of the reasoning um, is flawed. All of the, you know, oh, it saves money. That's not true. Oh, you know, some crimes are just that bad. No, I think that it's sufficient. First of all, I mean, there's a larger conversation about whether the carceral system is actually the way that you even deter crime. Um, but if we're working within this reality, 
then the death penalty for me is off the table because our system, we're already acknowledging how flawed it is. That's right. And so our bill, um, my bill with Senator Dick Durbin, um, the Federal Death Penalty Prohibition Act of 2021, what it will do is prohibit the use of the death penalty at the federal level and require resentencing of those currently on death row. So I think that's an important point uh, to mm -hmm. be made. And once again, in the midst of this reckoning, you know, Julie, I keep coming back to that because yep. I'm not letting folks off the hook. <laughs> no one bill is going to undo centuries of harm. And your likes and your retweets and those hashtags and your Black Lives Matter t-shirt that you did not even buy from a Black vendor and mm -hmm. the plaza that we have that's beautifully painted that I appreciate and thank all the artists that are right. Black Lives Matter on that plaza. But that wasn't on my list. I did not right. add Black Lives Matter plaza. What I want is for us to codify the value of Black lives in our budgets and in our policies. So if we are really in the midst of a reckoning on racial injustice, then that has to be true across every issue because it is systemic and it is structural. Um, as Dr. Kendi uh, in, my, uh, in my Massachusetts 7th District at Boston University, mm -hmm. uh, remind us being actively anti-racist. Mm -hmm. um, State-sanctioned murder is not justice. We have to abolish the federal death penalty. And this is also a racial justice issue. It's so important. And I'm so glad that you've um, put forward a bill. So one, it gives us something to discuss um, and bring it back up to the to the you know, the top of people's minds um, as something that can be changed for the better. It's, it's so important to identify issues like that. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley for joining us today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like, I feel like I've known you like my whole life or, so, you know, sometimes it feels, you know, when you meet people, it feels like, you know, oh, are we cousins or like maybe, um, you know, we, we, and you know how we do anyway. We always have a bunch of play cousins. So, I know. I know. <laughs> so, so, so I, so I claim you. You know. Thank you. Thank you all so much. You, you get me. Policy is my yeah. life. Yes. You yes. Me. Want I love it. Policy, and that's what I appreciate. So I love it. It's such a pleasure to always chat with you about policy and about this reckoning, which is still going on, and we have to understand that it's not just you know changing your Instagram picture to a black child. It's there are tangible steps. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.